0: Bless you guys. Bless you guys. You're just happy that he's coming back next week. Isn't that great? Yeah, I can't wait to have him back with us next week. Bless you all. Good morning. Good morning. I told my wife just before I walked up, I have to sneeze. So Mike, if I give you the high sign, everybody batten down the hatches because I think we're going to be all right. Oh my goodness. Y'all can turn to John chapter 13. I need to explain something to you though. Uh, that you heard last week because it sent a lot of people into confusion. And so I'm going to explain it to you right now. So uh, before Pastor Sam and Brenda left for some much-needed time away, he was talking about who was going to be ministering. And he was talking about all the R's that were going to be ministering. So he said there was Dave Reaver, okay, that was the first week. And then there was Robert Madu, and then there was Danny Robinson, y'all got the R's. And then last week, Pastor Danny said, and I think there's another R that's gonna be up next week. Well, Pastor Sam had told y'all before he left that I was the last person, and so when Pastor Danny said, there's another R coming up next week, my phone started blowing up <laughs> on the front row. And I, there were some fantastic texts, let me tell you versions of my name, you know, some people like, is it Carrie, what is it, Uh, what had happened was when we were in the the prayer room before we came out, Pastor Tim Ryder said the fourth R is, because my middle initial, my middle name starts with R, so that's where the R comes from, so yes, you can clap for my middle initial, isn't that a great, yeah, that's really sad, isn't it, they just, you want to know what the name is? It's not that exciting. It's Now, a lot of people think I'm Hispanic. So they'll come up and say, "Is it Ricardo?" <laughs> Actually, kind of yes. My middle name is Richard. So, yeah, my dad's first name was Richard, and so he gave me my middle name of Richard. So, Pastor Tim's telling the story in the, in the prayer room about my middle initial being R, so Pastor Dandy remembered that much of the story <laughs> and said it out here and my phone, just <laughs> And so I had one person who I'm not gonna call out, but he knows who he is. Was, he was like, is that gonna be Rary Rots who is reaching next week <laughs> for the worship service? And Pastor John King says, dude, next week, all of your points should start with the letter R. Just because. So that's the explanation behind the R, the fourth R here. But this week we're going to be starting Pastor Sam's new series, which he's going to be continuing next week. I'll tell you what, they've just been itching to get back here. They've needed some time away and uh, really much needed to rest to just be able to, after the 15 or so months they've been walking through, but yet at the same time, you are their family. You're their church family. And they love to be here. And even when we tell them to go away and forget about this place, they don't. Uh, they're always worshiping online with us and so forth. Those of you that are online, we welcome you. If Pastor Sam and Brenda are there, which even if they're not in this moment, yeah, they're going to be. Don't you love them, church family? Yeah. 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 So we're starting his new series called One Another. There are a lot of one another's in the Bible. Now, Dr. Pastor Brian Lidbeck said to me before we came out. That's what the students call him at North Point, Dr. Pastor Brian. So DPB, that's how I, if I email him, it's DPB. He said, are you gonna say alelone? Which is the Greek word that means one another. It's such a beautiful word. He said alelone, say it with me. Alone. Doesn't it just roll off the tongue? And if you want to be spiritual, you can say to somebody, leave me alelone. I don't want to be bothered. That's the word. So now you know allelone, it is a, that You can just throw that out there. It sounds smart and nice, and it flows off the tongue. But there are a lot of alelone references in the scriptures, and we're going to be talking about one of those today. And it's going to be in John chapter 13 is where we're going to start out. And the reason why there's so many one another passages is because we're called to be part of a community of believers. We have to interact with and relate to one another. I saw a social media post recently where somebody, the person was really nice, I liked them. Uh, they they like to glorify God, but they made the statement that said, you know, you don't have to go to church Uh, you can just experience God right where you are, wherever that might be. And, And I thought, that's really nice intended and sounds great. But if I picked you up from 21st century America and put you back in the time of the scriptures with the early church, they would say, we have no idea what you're talking about. You can't do that because you're supposed to be part of a believing community. They wouldn't know anything about what that means. Is it a perfect believing community? No. People sometimes are like, well, you guys! I don't want to go to that church, you're full of hypocrites. That's kind of the point. We are, and we need to grow in the character of Jesus Christ, and we can't do that just sitting at home. Okay? We do that together with one another. And so uh, that's why there's so many one another admonitions that are in the scripture, but It's not just how we treat one another inside the context of the church. We will talk about that, but it's also the one another's of us in the larger community of the world that we live in. How do we relate one another inside the context of the believing community, and how do we extend that to the rest of the world that's around us? Because we don't want it just to be in here. Heaven forbid we live out the scriptures in here, and then with the outside world, we just don't represent Christ at all. So we're going to look at those couple of things over the next few weeks, how we relate to one another here and what it means for the rest of the world around us. And today, we're going to start with a command that Jesus gave us. So think about what you think is the greatest command. You might think to yourself, well, the greatest command, 10 commandments, Exodus, so you'll have no other gods before me. Uh, That one about not murdering other people, that's pretty important. Maybe that's a great command. Uh, Don't lie. Don't commit adultery. Don't uh, bear false witness. uh, Don't covet whatever Uh, Or maybe you're thinking the greatest command is whichever command is easiest for me to keep. That's the greatest command. Jesus is gonna give us a command right here in John chapter 13, and it's not one of the 10 commandments. It's something else. And uh, he's gonna talk about it in John 13, verse 34. If you wanna take a look, he says this. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So the, to love, that is the greatest command, to love. And what he says this is a new command, it's not so much that the command is new, but they're about to see it and experience it in a way that they haven't before. The Old Testament made references to loving each other. But they're about to see something, and the context in which this command is given is going to tell us a lot about what Jesus is showing them. And it actually, when he says love one another, it actually echoes something else he said at a different time, because he was ministering, and some Jewish religious leaders, they were always coming up, asking him a question. Sometimes they did that because they were genuinely curious. They really wanted to know what he said about something. I think the Jewish religious leaders, although they're his greatest persecutors, I think there was also that side of them that was really curious about this man who worked amazing miracles and taught in a way different than they did and yet had so much authority. And I think sometimes they asked him questions because they really wanted to know what he thought. Sometimes they asked him questions just to provoke him, just to try to trap him, just to try to stick it to him. This Jewish religious leader comes up to him and he says, so Jesus, which, which is the greatest command? And Jesus draws from Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Doesn't say anything about Exodus. He says, Deuteronomy and Leviticus. He puts two things together and here's what he says. Most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no command greater than these. So Jesus says, you wanna know what the greatest commands are? Love the Lord with everything that you have. That's first and best. And out of that, love your neighbor as yourself. To love is the greatest command. And Jesus said that these right here, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. All the rest of the law that you see in the Old Testament hangs on those. You fulfill those, you will fulfill everything else that you need to fulfill. Because to love is the greatest command. So there are other places in scripture that tell us to love one another, but all of them, and we'll go over some of them in the weeks to come, but when Paul says it and so forth, all of those things are really built on Jesus saying, love one another. And he just, he tells them, but he's also gonna show them some things. So how does Jesus show love to them? We're gonna see that as we unpack stuff today. And why does Jesus say this here? If you don't know the context of what's happening in John chapter 13, Jesus is, this is the Last Supper. Jesus is getting ready to say the last things he's ever gonna say to his disciples. When you know you're coming to the end of this earthly life, you don't waste your words. You say the most important things. You spend your time with the most important people. You don't waste your time. You don't waste it on people you don't wanna be with. You're with the people you want to be saying the things that you need to say. You're not getting to the end of your life and saying, who are the lions gonna draft? Because that's not important. And the Lions need to draft Jesus. That's who the Lions need to draft. Yes. (laughs) Golly, I'm sorry. That's that energy drink I had this morning, I think is what it is. But Jesus is starting the Last Supper with them, and he's saying the most important things because he knows what's coming. He knows crucifixion is coming. He knows burial is coming. He knows resurrection is coming. But he also knows he's going to ascend and go back to to the Father, and they're going to be on their own. So he's saying the most important things he needs to say to them. This is his farewell discourse. And after Jesus talks about the need for loving each other, well, let me tell you what happens here. The reason why he's telling them is after... After he's gone, he knows they're going to have to face the world. And he says, actually, in this passage, that the world is going to hate you. Just remember, if the world hated me... Now, these disciples do not know what's about to happen in the next 18 hours. They don't know that he's going to be executed and he's going to be taken away from them. But he knows it. So he says to them in, this, in part of this passage, the world hated me, and if it hated me, you better know it's going to hate you. When they see that he gets executed... He wants them to realize, you could be up for this too. The world hated me, it's gonna hate you. So what do they need to do? You need to stick together and you need to love one another. That's why Jesus is saying this right now. Now what's happened is he's just finished washing his disciples' feet. And we'll come back to that disciple foot washing thing maybe a little bit later in the series. But he's just finished washing the disciples' feet, which they just totally couldn't understand, that Jesus would do what he did. And after he finishes washing the feet, then something happens. You know, sometimes when we read the accounts of Jesus, we read the things that he said, and the stuff that happens around it just becomes incidental. Sometimes the stuff that's going on around Jesus is actually part of the message he's trying to get across to people. Let me give you an example. In the book of Mark, uh, Jesus is repeatedly saying to his disciples, he keeps using the word see. You don't see. Why do you not see? Because he's trying to get them to understand and see who he is. They don't fully grasp that he's the Messiah yet. They know there's something special about him. Maybe they're hinting in that direction. Maybe they got an inkling about it, but they really don't see it in all of its fullness. And Jesus keeps using that word over and over in different ways, you don't see, they don't see. And then there's this little divine setup that happens in the ministry of Jesus. It's an amazing miracle that he works where he heals a blind man. It's one of my favorite miracles because it's the one where Jesus spits in his eyes. Can you imagine if the spitting anointing starts here? <laughs> Everybody just got afraid to come to prayer for the alt at the altar. I love it. I love that that miracle. Uh, because it's like, now Jesus is God of the universe, but still there's that side of me that's like you couldn't come up with a different way to bring about this miracle. And my mind plays things out. So I'm thinking if I'm one of the disciples, the next time somebody needs a miracle, I'm saying. Just to let you know, last time somebody came, they got spit in the face, you know. But if Jesus spits in your face, he can do whatever he wants. If Jesus spits at you, it's either really good or really bad. Either a miracle's coming or you're out. It's one of those two. But Jesus spits in this guy's eyes, and then he says, what do you see? And the guy says, I see men walking around like trees." So it tells us a couple of things. One is that sometimes miracles are progressive. Sometimes they take a little bit. But there's something else actually going on here because Jesus has been saying to his disciples, you don't see. When are you going to see? And then he does this miracle and he spits in the guy's eyes and says, what do you see? And the guy says, I can see a little bit. And it's like Jesus is showing the disciples, this is what it's like with you. I keep trying to get you to see, but you're not seeing. And then Jesus finishes the miracle. The guy gets his sight all the way back. And then Jesus says to his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they say, Some say you're this one and that one and a prophet and so forth. And then he says, Who do you say that I am? And Peter finally says, You are the Messiah. And he doesn't use this exact words, but it's like Jesus saying, Now you see. That whole little miracle which was meaningful for the man who was blind, was also just a divinely orchestrated moment for Jesus to visually communicate something that he was trying to say to them verbally. So When you read about Jesus, don't just pay attention to what he says. What's going on around it? And in this context at the Last Supper, something's going on around Jesus, and the words that he said are kind of being punctuated by some of the things that are happening around him. So he has just washed the feet of the disciples in John chapter 13. And after he does that, he starts to say something very curious. One of you is going to betray me. And can you imagine being one of these 12? One of them knows who it is, the one who's going to be the betrayer. But can you imagine the other 11? They're all curious. What do you mean one of us is going to betray you? There's no way we would. Who in the world is that? And if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll find out that Jesus has the 12, but he also has a little inner circle. Two brothers, James and John, and then Peter, they're kind of his inner circle. They're kind of the guys who are the closest to him. And when he's at this supper, John is situated right by Jesus. So Peter says, John, ask him who's going to be the person that will betray him. And in Jesus, so John asks, him, and Jesus says, I'm gonna take this bread and I'm gonna dip it in the bowl here. And the person I give it to, that's the person who's gonna be the betrayer. Now, John and Peter are watching this. So Jesus dips the bread and he gives it to Judas. And what he does in that moment is he, he treats Judas with incredible honor. Him giving, as the host of the dinner, him giving Judas that little morsel It's like he's just, he's treating him with honor on the one hand, and on the other hand, Jesus is picking a fight. Because it says that after Judas took the bread, Satan entered his heart, and then Jesus looks at him, the Son of God himself looking at Judas, who has now been taken over by Satan himself, and says, go do what you do quickly. Jesus was not a helpless victim, by the way. This is Jesus as the aggressor in disguise. This is Jesus picking a fight in this moment. I'm feeling one of those Pentecostal moments coming on. I better calm down now. Pastor Sam talking about getting the hot ties, is that right? If I hot tie, we're out. Jesus is coming back. My wife will tell you if I tap my foot during worship, she's looking up. Because I am the ultimate and I pass that gift to my sons. We are introverts. So if the hata's come, the dead are going to be raised. We're off. We're out of here. I'm telling you. Y'all are hoping now. Hatah, hatah. So he gives the bread to Judas. And John and Peter see this. Now, not everybody else of the, of the 11 know. They don't understand it all in a moment. But they're going to look back on it and they're going to grasp it. Later, but John and Peter for sure know. And Jesus has this picture going where he's, Judas gets up and leaves, and Jesus moves on and says, You need to love one another. Now, what's the picture that you just saw right there? Judas gets up and leaves. That's an example of what love doesn't look like. Jesus stays and is here. Love is loyal. For John and for Peter, they're seeing, wait a minute, Jesus is saying, love one another. That guy just walked out. He's not part of the love one another gang. That's not what love looks like. Love is loyal. Love is faithful. And Jesus doesn't say it with his words, but the events that are happening around it show you the stark contrast between what you're seeing in that room in that dinner and the guy that just walked out the door who's now become the ultimate traitor, the ultimate betrayer. Jesus is demonstrating for them this is what love looks like. That's not what love looks like. Now, I know we're going to say some other things in the series about how different ways we love each other and serve each other and prefer each other and so forth. But when we look at how Jesus, he said in John 13, he said, as I have loved you, so you need to love one another. In this context, how is Jesus conveying love? And this is one way. Here I am. Later on in Hebrews, it's going to quote something from the Old Testament where it says, I will never leave you or forsake you. That's loyal love. That's how Jesus was with his disciples. That's the example he's given them. No matter what happens, I am with you. You need to be with each other. That is isn't what love looks like. Love is loyal. And you know, I get so frustrated because sometimes, sometimes people like to get their credibility with the outside world by bashing on the church, okay? That's not loyal love. Sometimes, sometimes people, they're all about the community of believers until they don't like something. I didn't like the way you preach whatever, I didn't like you said that word, you didn't do what I thought you should do or whatever, and now I'm out. That's not loyal love. Or even in the context, maybe we stay in the, the context of the church, we're just not loyal one to another. That, that's not what Jesus wants for his body. He wants people who are faithful and loyal to one another because it's very easy to get the attitude that's really I'm not about having your back, I'm about having my back. I'll have your back if it's good for me, but if it's not good for me, then I'm out. That's not loyal love. If I have a different agenda, then I'm out. That's not loyal love. That was Judas' deal. He had his own agenda, he was out. But Jesus is showing us that love is loyal. Now Peter sees what Judas does. He knows where he, what he's gonna, he doesn't know exactly what he's gonna go do, but he knows that he's gonna go do something that's gonna be a betrayal to Jesus. And then he thinks, I'll show Jesus, I'm not gonna be like Judas who just walked out the door. And he says to Jesus, I will stay with you constantly because Jesus is saying, I'm gonna go be glorified, I'm gonna to go to the cross is what he's saying. Peter doesn't have the full understanding of it but Peter's thinking I'm not gonna be like Judas, I'm gonna be the opposite, I will even give my life for you, Jesus. And in that moment, Jesus communicates something to Peter that probably shocked him and probably stunned him because Jesus, Peter is saying, Jesus, I will be with you and, Pe- and Jesus looks at Peter and says, no, you won't. Because before the rooster crows in the morning and the sun comes up, you are gonna deny me. And what he's saying to Peter is this. Peter, I know you saw Judas, and I know you think you can do this stuff on your own, but apart from me, you could be a Judas. Peter, apart from me, You cannot walk with me. You cannot stay with me. Apart from me, you're not going to be able to love each other like I'm calling you to love each other. Jump forward to John chapter 15. This is still part of Jesus interacting with his disciples in this context, but this whole idea of love comes back up again in John 15 at verse 9. Because Jesus knows that it requires him in order to keep his commands. Here's what it says in John 15, 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. Remember those four words, remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commands and I remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. What does it mean to remain in Jesus love that word remain means to abide it means to dwell it means to to live in or reside in now i want you to notice something what jesus doesn't say is if you keep my commands then i will love you that's not what jesus says jesus is going to love them no matter what but he says if you keep my commands then you will reside in you will live in my love think of the context of a marriage and in the scriptures Marriage is a great reflection of what the gospel is like. You have a husband and you have a wife, and I've known couples where, say, for example, the husband is off doing his thing. He, when the weekend comes, he wants to go drinking at the bar. He wants to go fishing. He wants to go hunting. He wants to go whatever, and some of those things are okay, but he's never spending time with his wife. Now, she still loves him, but he's not residing in that love. Every married man in this room knows that there's been a moment you have not resided in your wife's love. No elbows or nothing like that in this moment. Some of y'all might not be residing on the way to church here this morning. But you know what I mean. Love you, but there's a difference between being loved by someone and you actually residing in that love. And Jesus says, I love you? But if you really want to do what I've called you to do, then you need to remain, reside, live in my love. He knows that if his disciples reside in his love, then they can love one another like he wants them to. Because God's love empowers us to love other people. John, who wrote this book, wrote other books in the New Testament as well. Toward the end of your New Testament, there's 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. If you look in 1st John 4, John talks a lot about love. He even refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's how much the theme of love is important in John. And he says in 1 John four nineteen, we love because he first loved us. We love him because he first loved us and we can love one another because he first loved us. But he's the one who loves first. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever sees or forever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen can't love God whom they have not seen. John is saying here, we love because he first loved us, and out of receiving that love, out of abiding in that love, remaining in that love, then I can love God back, and then I can love others because God's love empowers me to love other people. Otherwise, I can be a Judas. If I don't remain in his love, I may have the greatest of intentions, but there's a difference between me just kind of being in the area and residing in that love. When I reside in his love, then I can love like he wants me to. And I'll tell you, I have prayed prayers like this. God, you need to love so and so through me because I don't have it. I ain't got it. Whoever that person is, your family, your coworker, your friend, whatever, You know you have those moments when something's been done, someone's irritating, someone's got a pattern of whatever, and it frustrates you, and the last thing you feel for them is love. And it's okay to pray in that moment, God, I need your love to rise up on the inside of me and love through me because I don't have it on my own. I need you to empower me to love my brother, my sister in Christ. I need your love first. Help me to receive your love. Help me to live in your love so that I can love other people. And the thing is, it's kind of like a circle of obedience. Jesus is saying, I want you to keep my commands, but on my own I can't keep his commands. So if I express a desire Jesus, would you help me keep your commands? It's like the guy in the New Testament who said, Lord, I believe you, will you please help my unbelief? I've got a heart to move in your direction, but I can't go all the way without you. So it's Jesus, I know you want me to love and keep your commands, and I wanna do that. And when Jesus sees that you have a heart to do that, it's like he empowers you to do it. And the more he empowers you to do it, the more you're like, okay, Jesus, I need more power to do this. And the more he sees your heart to do it, the more he empowers you to do it. It's like a little circle of obedience that is initiated there. So love is loyal, but I can't love you unless I live in God's love and am empowered with, by his love to love you. And now Jesus has said it to them, and he's shown it in a lot of different ways before, but in this moment at the Last Supper, you see the picture of love that's not loyal walking out the door. You see Jesus in this moment serving his disciples and remaining with them. And then what you see is him getting ready to show the ultimate example of love, love at its peak. John 15, verse 12, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. He's saying it again. He said it in John 13, now he's saying it in John 15, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Now, 21st century America, we kind of love that language. That feels heroic to us. First century language where Jesus was, that's not so much the case. They didn't have the same kind of a value. So in our culture, we think it's really cool. We love those stories where somebody rescues the stranger. Somebody pushes the person out of the way uh, of the train and they give their life. Somebody takes a bullet for someone else, even if they don't know who they are. We think that's heroic and that's a great thing. First century culture, not so much. Uh, there's a passage where, where it talks about, you know, a man might die for someone who's really good maybe, but just dying for somebody, that wasn't so much a value. It's a little bit different in our, the context of our culture. But Jesus is getting ready to blow that thing right out of the water because what he's getting ready to do is to march to the cross and die for people, none of whom deserve him to die on their behalf. None of them. He's getting ready to go forward and do that and show them what love is really all about. He's getting ready to to march to the cross and show the highest expression of love because love is sacrificial. Love is sacrificial. There are other things that the New Testament's going to say, but when Jesus says, love as I have loved, he gives larger than life examples, and the cross is a larger than life example of what it means to love someone, the ultimate sacrifice. This is what the heart of love really looks like. This is the attitude that love really has. And like I said, it wasn't likely that in that culture, someone was going to die for someone else, especially a stranger who was completely undeserving, but that's exactly what Jesus is going to do. So now, are we really willing to sacrifice for one another is the question. I think we are very, Grand Rapids First has always been a very sacrificing church in a lot of ways. I mean, Pastor Tim just talked about it, this video that we saw about helping to build churches and city serve, and I was looking, I don't know, there's 700-some heroes. They're not all at this, at this church, but we need more heroes. That was a plug for Pastor Eric and Pastor Doug. We need more city serve heroes. But you are doing that kind of stuff. Whenever there's a servant evangelism project, whenever there's something we need to give to, can't think of the number of times Pastor Sam's come and said, you know what, such as such a ministry needs whatever and i think we can do it and you all are like yes we absolutely can do it and you sacrifice and you give and i think that's i think that's a good quality about grand rapids first but outside of that when we're just in the private places of our lives how sacrificial are you how much do you sacrifice for other people how much do you lay down your life in the context of your home and the context of your job site what about sacrificing in those contexts? Do you demonstrate the sacrificial love of Jesus where you're gonna say, it isn't about me, And is it likely that you're gonna have to physically lay down your life for someone? Probably not, probably not in our context, but your brothers and sisters in Christ around the world, they absolutely are having to do that, to lay down their lives, sometimes for each other. But in our context, where the biggest thing that we get is criticism, The biggest thing we get is somebody making fun of us because we won't do whatever. Are you willing to sacrifice and lay down your life? Are you willing to sacrifice for your family, for your brothers, for your sisters in Christ? Because love is sacrificial. The greatest expression of love is to sacrifice. It isn't what you give to someone necessarily. You can give great gifts as an expression of love. You can provide a great home, do all kinds of great stuff, but you know what really shows your love is your willingness to lay down your life for someone else. It's why in Ephesians 5, when Paul is talking about marriage, he says to the husband, you are supposed to lay down your life for your wife just like Christ laid down his life for the church because that is true love, Sacrificing. Jesus goes on in John 15, 14. And he says, you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants, because the servant doesn't know his master's business. But I've called you friends. For everything I learned from my Father, I've made known to you jesus was always sharing always communicating always drawing in his disciples in a friendship type of a relationship and then he says you did not choose me but i chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit that will last so that whatever you ask in my name the father will give you this is my command love each other Isn't it interesting that he goes into these words talking about their being his friends, and then they're going to go on this mission to bear fruit and all of that stuff, and you think he's changed the topic, but then he comes back around and he says, this is my command, love each other. First of all, do you notice that Jesus chose them for friendship? He chose them for a love relationship with him, a close-knit, loving friendship relationship. I chose you, and he's the one who initiated it. And he says, I want you to stick together. I want you to stick together on mission. But listen, friendship in his context is a two-way street. In our culture, we like no-strings-attached stuff. If, you, if I'm gonna buy something from you, no-strings-attached. If you're gonna give me a commercial, no strings attached. I hate at the end of commercials, you ever listen to a commercial, and at the end they have the guy that talks 500 miles an hour to give you all the reasons why you're not going to get the deal that they just offered to you. I hate, as soon as I hear those, I say, now I'm never buying your product because that's all the strings attached. We want no strings attached stuff in our in our relationships. And that's not the way it worked in this culture because in Jesus' culture, if you are my friend, I depend on you, and I could show up, and I can ask you for whatever, and you would help me out, and you can depend on me, because I anticipate that you're gonna ask something of me at some point, and in that type of a context, Jesus says, I call you friends, and you can depend on me, but I also have something that I need you to do, which is to keep my commands, and I need you to be on mission, and go to bear fruit. And as you go to do that together, linked together, looking out for one another because the world is gonna hate you, as you do that, you can ask the Father anything in my name and he will give it to you because you're accomplishing what I want you to accomplish. Now, as you go do that, remember, this is what I command, love each other. He's saying, I chose you to be my loyal, loving friends and you can go on mission for me together looking out for one another in the love i empower you to give each other. So Jesus invites us into his community of faith and he says we have to love each other. And he demonstrates it by going to the cross and in the weeks ahead Wednesday night thrive stuff we're going to unpack some things about the cross that are going to be very interesting to us. So we'll talk about those things later but he goes to the cross and he demonstrates what love really looks like. And in a moment, we're gonna commemorate what his sacrificial love looks like because we're gonna take communion together. But the first thing we need to do is we need to let Jesus accomplish his work in our hearts. I'm not quitting, by the way, I've just gotta come get my, I need that water too. Thank you. Before we commemorate what Jesus did for us, Why don't we ask him to work in our hearts? Because I just have to believe that in this room, or even watching online with our online community, there are probably two groups of people and one of those groups of people is people who have never received the love of Jesus at all. You've never dwelt in his love because you've never even received him or asked him to shed his love abroad in your heart. You've never done that. And hear me, You can sit in church week after week after week and be lost as can be. Be lost as can be. I'll never forget one of my favorite ministry moments ever was when I was ministering around the world in Australia and we gave an altar call. I did, I ministered in music. Uh, We gave an altar call and six people came to Jesus and one of them was a guy named Marshall who had been in that church his entire life. At the time, he was 53 years old. He grew up in the church sat in the church week after week, married his wife in the church, went to church with her week after week, never submitted his heart to Christ until that night. So don't think, I watch online or I sit in the pew and that you're set. Jesus wants to actually have a living relationship with you. The second group of people are people who you say, when I said live and reside in Jesus' love, you know you're not residing in his love. You know you're not keeping his commands. You've experienced him before. You've submitted your heart to him before, but you're not residing in his love. And he wants you to reside in his love this morning. So I'm just gonna ask us to bow our heads and close our eyes. And I'm not gonna call you forward in this moment, but I do want you to raise your hand in just a moment just to give us the opportunity to pray with you, just for you to respond to what Jesus is saying to you. So if you fall into that category, you're one of those people who's like, you know what? even when I've gone to church, I've never really submitted my heart to Jesus. Or you're one of those people who says, yeah, I have, but I've walked away from residing in his love. I don't know how many there are in this room, but if that's you, I just want you to raise your hand and we're gonna pray before we actually take communion and commemorate what Jesus did for us. So right now in this moment, just raise your hand up and give us a chance to pray for you. You've never come to him before and you need to come to him today or you have, but you've walked away from your faith and you need to start residing back in his love again. Just lift those hands up for us. Yeah, all right, all right. Good, 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 good. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. So Lord, we thank you so much for your grace, for your goodness. We thank you, Lord, for your incredible love for us. Lord, I just ask for those in this room, maybe they fall into those categories. They fall into the category of never having known you or they've walked with you, but they're just not living out their faith. They're just not residing in your love. Would you come in this moment? We just ask you to wash away all of the stuff of before, all the sin, all the bondage, all of those things. Wash those things away. And instead, would you just come in this moment and make some people new and bring other people back to a passionate relationship with you? We thank you, God, for your incredible grace that you love us and you're never gonna stop loving us. You never leave us, you never forsake us. Thank you, Jesus. I want you to take the elements here this morning and we've talked about Jesus sacrificing for us but telling us to love one another. You know, every time we do communion, Pastor Sam quotes from... 1 Corinthians chapter 11. What he does, and we take the elements, we usually pray for a couple of things. And it's very legitimate to pray for those things. Uh, When we take the bread, we very often pray for physical healing, which is legitimate because Isaiah 53 talks about how Jesus, his body was given for us. And one of the benefits that we get from that is that we actually get physical healing. We get healed inside in our hearts and we can experience physical healing as well. That's perfectly legitimate. And when we take of that juice, symbolic of the blood of the Lord Jesus, very often we're praying that God will break the bondage of sin in people's lives, habits that just won't seem to go away, things that always seem to hold us down, and that's very legitimate because the blood of the Lord Jesus does break those things, and it's right for us to do that when we take communion. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the words that Pastor Sam's drawing from actually relate very much to what it is that we've talked about this morning. And I'm gonna read a broader section of that passage because we're used to reading the passage that says, on the night when Jesus was betrayed, this is what happened. But the whole section talks a little bit more about what we're talking about. Paul says in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. There have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. Now, there's all kinds of theology in there I'm not gonna stop on, but notice the word divisions. so so when you come together, it's not the Lord's supper that you eat, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry, another person gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat in and drink it? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Not in this matter. Let me tell you what, what was a common practice of the church in Corinth. The richer people would have dinners, and the poorer people who were more likely to be their servants had to stand around on the outside, and they were not allowed to speak at all. They were just there to serve, to do what was needed, and actually begin to move into sexual immorality and parties that were outside the context of the church. And those slaves were there to serve the food, keep your mouth shut, and then afterwards, there's gonna be, I'm gonna use you as my sexual toy. That's what happened in that culture. I don't think that's exactly what's going on at the church in Corinth, but there's something similar where it's like, some of you have come together and you richer ones that have more, you're getting drunk and you're expecting the poorer people who are actually your brothers and sisters in Jesus to keep their mouths shut and stay on the outside. So some of you are getting all you need to eat and some of you are going hungry. That's not right. That's what Paul is saying. And then he says, I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread, drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. And then he says another important part, So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves very often when we read that passage, we think of looking at our hearts and trying to discern what's going on in our hearts so that we don't take this in an unworthy manner. But when Paul says you need to discern the body, he means you need to discern the body. Let me put it in another way. Paul is saying when you sin against the body, you sin against the body. And so in a moment, we are gonna pray for God to bring healing to our bodies. We are gonna pray for God to break the bondage of sin in our lives. But before we do that, I just wanna ask you, in what way might you have not lived out loving one another? In what way might you have sinned against the body? And I'm not gonna ask you to go in this moment But I want you to think about what that might be, and then I want you to commit it to the Lord and commit to afterwards making things right with whatever brother or sister you need to make things right with. Could be in your home, could not be in your home, could be someone in this congregation, could be an offense that you've you've offended someone, someone's offended you. Let's discern the body right, and let's not sin against the body by sinning against the body. So Lord, I'm just asking you to speak to us in this moment. And I pray that you will show us how we need to make things right. I pray that you will show us how we need to love one another. We don't wanna sin against you by sinning against one another. So I ask you to surface in our hearts those relationships that we need to make right. And I would you give us the power by the grace of your Holy Spirit to follow up and make things right face to face we offer those relationships up to you. And now Lord, as we take the bread, we thank you for your body that was given for us. We thank you that because of your body being given for us, that we can receive divine healing, healing in our souls and healing in our physical bodies. If you're in this room and you need some kind of healing, in your body right now, I'm just gonna ask you to stand up right where you are. Doesn't matter what it is, could be a cold, could be some type of a diagnosis you've gotten. If you wanna stand on behalf of someone else and just stand in front of them, that's fine too. Would you stand in this moment? So Lord Jesus, by the power of your spirit, I ask you to move across this room and would you touch people's bodies? Would you bring about divine healing? There's nothing too big, there's nothing too small. You are our healer. And we thank you, Lord, that part of you going to the cross, part of you suffering for us, was to purchase healing for us. So in the name of the Lord Jesus, now I ask you to touch everyone in this room who needs the healing by the power of your spirit and we take the bread in honor of what you've done for us. Church family, would you eat of the bread? I'm gonna ask the rest of you to stand with us. We know that the shed blood of Jesus really is symbolic of his ability to cleanse us. From every sin from every bondage scripture tells us that without the shedding of blood that there is no remission there is no forgiveness of sins but we know that Jesus blood was shed for us and we know that power still remains and I'm not gonna ask you to raise a hand or do anything like that but right now in this room you know if there's something that is clinging to your life that in your own power you seem to not be able to move past you seem to not be able to break through there's the stuff of the world that clings to us there are the habits that get ingrained there are the attitudes that we just can't stop responding that way and it could be you in this room or again you could know someone that is just so bound and you feel free but you know that you're standing in on their behalf we're gonna ask Jesus to break every chain of bondage So, Jesus, we thank you that you did suffer for us. We thank you, God, for the shedding of your blood. As brutal as it was, it accomplished so much amazing stuff for us. We know that without the shedding of blood, we don't have forgiveness of sins. But, Jesus, your blood never loses its power. And even though it happened 2,000 years ago, it is as fresh and powerful today as it was back then. And I ask that you by your spirit would move all across this room and those points of bondage in the lives of people would just begin to be broken right now. Habits that just seem to not go away by the power of your spirit would be broken in this moment and they wouldn't even be an issue walking out the doors of this building uh addictions lord would you break the power of addiction in the lives of people there are addictions to substances i know but but i think that there's some of us in this room who are addicted to other things addicted to anger addicted to vengeance addicted to uh, grudges and bitterness jesus would you come and break those things right now and for those who are standing in the place of another. Another who just cannot break past whatever it is that holds them in bondage. Jesus, I know that you said that God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they can't see. Lord, by the power of your blood, we stand in on their behalf. Pray that you'll break the bondages so that they can see. Thank you, Jesus, for the power of your shed blood. Church, will you partake of the cup? Thank you, Jesus.